Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hadmer, and I'm studying the space industry and its associated laws, customs, and policies at the School of History and Philosophy of Science at Sydney University. I've just returned from the Space Generation Congress and the International Astronautical Congress in Washington, DC. I'll be putting out episodes on these once I've edited everything together and figured out how to contextualize Vice President Pence's opening remarks. In the meantime, this week, I'm bringing you a conversation with a future space leader I met at the Congress, Megan Munro. Megan is studying aerospace engineering and is organizing the AYAA Aerospace Futures Conference next year in Adelaide. I think you'll agree that Megan is a person who is going places, and I feel very privileged to have had her on the podcast long before her inevitable ascent to senior leadership within the space industry and within Australia more broadly. We spoke about where we see Australia going and how important it is for millennials to seek advice, opinions and wisdom from the older space generations. And of course, I have to say that any opinions expressed by me on this podcast or anywhere else you come across me are my own and do not represent the views of any organizations with which I am associated. Enjoy the podcast. I've sat down with Megan Munro. Megan, tell us about yourself. So I am in my fourth year of aerospace engineering at Monash University. So that's in Melbourne, Australia. In my undergraduate, I've been widely involved in in organizations teams and um and that's really been the core experience throughout my degree so megan how did you come to get interested in aerospace engineering that is a fantastic question i did not have a conventional journey into aerospace i feel that a lot of people were struck with uh, kind of outreach and excitement with the space industry at a young age and that really inspired them. I I never really experienced that. So it wasn't until my first year of university that aerospace truly became an option to me. I knew I wanted to go into engineering. Uh, The mathematics and the creativity was an element that, you know, I wanted to have for the rest of my life. And when I came to engineering, it came down to mechanical aerospace because the fundamental physics and the kind of centralized systems approach to those sorts of engineering fields is really interesting to me. Um, I chose aerospace because I think I'm driven by passion and that passion for me has come from many places in my life and and I started to feel feel it. I, I knew it was coming. I, I felt that it was going to be something that excited me and so I took a leap of faith and I have not regretted it ever since. So at school, did you study maths? Did you study science? What else did you do? So I had quite a diverse experience at school. I did do two mathematical subjects and I did physics. 
um, but I was also a student of history and a student of drama. So I did a lot of extracurricular in the drama side of my school, which was doing musicals, doing directing, choreography, singing, all that kind of creative element, which was really enjoyable. And the mathematics was really just during my classes. Did you ever think that you might want to go into theatre or become an actor or something like that? I don't think acting was something I wanted to do in a, in a Hollywood movie context, but I was super open to the idea of theatre because I think theatre has a, a level of an emotional impact that you can't really experience in any other medium. Um, I tried to find a way to bring them together, actually. I, I looked into avenues for doing fine arts and engineering. Um, it's not currently available. I've heard on the grapevine that it's starting to become thought about because, you know, anyone in any STEM field really needs to tap into a creative element and allowing people to use both sides of their brains is, is positive. So mm. it might be an up and coming thing. It's definitely something I would have done had I had the opportunity, but no, it was not something available. My experience of people in the space sector especially those working on the practical side of things. So that's, you know, building equipment, whether it be telescopes, um, adaptive optic systems or rockets. The people who do that tend to have very creative hobbies outside of their work or outside of their studies. And I've come across so many people who, whether it's that they like to go and learn to juggle outside of what they do, or a lot of people who make things, jewellery or woodwork, and really enjoy being practical with their hands and creative with their minds. You can combine arts with law, you can combine arts with science, but to combine arts with something really practical, like engineering, is something that hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. And I'm interested in why you think that might be. I think, historically, engineers have been a certain personality type. And potentially that personality type hasn't coincided with groups like you'd find in a fine arts group. Um, I think that's changing, but people are yet to catch on to how beneficial it could be to really facilitate and, and, and take that on board. Engineering can be, when approached in a certain way, very rigid, very structured, very inflexible. In my opinion, not a good approach to engineering, but I think that style of engineering doesn't coincide with us the same way a a really creative approach to engineering and problem solving it does. For a lot of people, if they're in your situation where they study maths and they love maths and maybe they do science, but they're also really good at drama and history, they may end up sort of identifying more with a non-technical degree and then at tertiary levels, moving away from engineering and so on. Was that something you thought about when you were deciding what to study? Yes, absolutely. There was a moment in time where I considered quite a number of degrees. Um, my English background was not traditional English. I did linguistics and linguistics still, again, it has that scientific and creative element to it. And I think that appealed to me so much that I could combine the two elements, you know, the social aspect of linguistics with the scientific background of things like morphology and phonetics almost caught me, almost caught me. But at the end of the day, I knew I liked mathematics. I was very, very fortunate to have been provided with a, an environment where mathematics was creative and fun. Mm -hmm. So even though in most, most contexts, mathematics was a little bit rigid. I had personally grown up with, you know, a lot of computer programs that made maths a little bit more enjoyable. Um, I loved problem solving. And so I went to a school that really facilitated the creative element of mathematics, um, which potentially was the saver for me in, in making sure that I ended up in the path that I'm in now. And you recently had an experience of leading a rocketry team. Tell me about that. That was an incredible, incredible experience. 
I was very, very fortunate to have been a part of the, the process of that team coming together. Um, I can give you a bit of the history. There Please. was a UAV team, or there is a UAV team at Monash University. UAV the, standing for? Uh, unmanned Aerial Vehicle. So the team is called technically Monash UAS, and they compete at a international competition that's based in Queensland, Australia, called the Medical UAV Challenge. And it's essentially about using autonomous drone systems for medical purposes. So the challenge the year I competed in it was to take off vertically, fly a distance away so you are out of line of sight, um, land, have a blood sample put in the, in the drone, take off again and fly back, all while navigating static and dynamic no-fly zones. So it was an incredible feat of engineering really and, and it, I was very blessed I was part of the team that won the year, the year that we did it. Um, and out of that team, during the announcement of an Australian rocketry challenge, we kind of had a bit of a thought, like this could be something that this talent pool could really do. And so out of that, I was selected as one of the people to be involved. And so really just an absolute honor to take up that mantle for the first year. Tell me about the process of working with a team to build a rocket. What does it look like? How does it feel? It is complex in its organizational capacity. There's subsystems, are very integrated in rocketry the size that we do you really cannot work in super separated teams so for us as a team we have six subgroups one of them is the business element which is a huge part of what we do in terms of outreach financial management merchandising and, and really providing value proposition to all of stakeholders including universities and external companies but then you've got a payload team who creates incredible scientific research during our sounding rocketry flights a propulsion team which is designing custom propulsion systems we have an aerostructural team that builds and designs different different shell shapes for different flight profiles we have a dynamics team that completely revolutionized how we uh, model rockets essentially in, in our university and building a six degree of freedom simulator so we now have the capacity to estimate the performance of our rockets in a way that really is almost at a commercial level and then we also have our last team which is our flight systems team so they're responsible for all the launch operations and the recovery operations which are incredibly complicated and really diverse so there is no point where any one of these teams doesn't have something that interfaces with the other. So from an organizational perspective, you really have to work out how are we going to make it so that these teams can communicate most effectively and how are we going to ensure that we have a group of volunteers that really go through industry level processes, documentation, things that students don't typically like to do, working out how to provide value to those things from a student's perspective. And when it comes to actually launching the rocket, were you there for that? Yes, I was there for every every major rocket launch. I was very, very fortunate. In rocketry in Australia, there are certain steps you have to go through. So there is a three-step certification process. Uh, level one certification was undertaken by four of us in July of 2018. It's basically launch a small-scale rocket with a certain amount of impulse and recover it safely. So a lot of people in our team do that. It's an enjoyable and fun thing. And for everyone listening, I would highly recommend you have a look at your local rocketry club because this is not just for people from universities or engineers. I know children, families that do it as an activity and it's incredibly fun and very rewarding. Moving up past that, you move into level two, which requires some more advanced recovery techniques. And so it involves the use of things like electronics to make sure that you are able to do what you need in level three, which is launching a very large rocket to a high altitude with a very, 
I was going to say, a more complicated recovery system. So for us, we were the first team in Australia to have a level three certification. And that involved a two-day trip to Queensland, um, going up there and launching a rocket to about 8,000 feet. And with a a dual separation recovery, which is essentially just that, we break the rocket apart at the top of its flight profile and we allow it to come down quite quickly. And then just before it's going to hit the ground, we are... have a larger parachute come out so that the rocket will land safely and we're able to recover all of the scientific experiments that we're undertaking. And to get there within, I think it was eight months for us, from fundamental beginnings from an organizational perspective to reaching that goal was incredible. That's a very fast time period in which to get that sort of certification. Yeah. How did it feel when the, how does it feel when the the rocket launches? It's one of those experiences like you have with anything that's slightly scary where everything just freezes for a moment. Um, when you press the ignition button, there's always that small delay between when it starts and then when it actually launches. And that moment feels like it goes forever despite being less than a second. The rockets that we launch, they're so fast that you see them far up into the sky before you ever even hear the noise. It's truly remarkable when you see something. We had one rocket travel to almost 30,000 feet And that was amazing because you see this this piece of equipment that you've spent so much time developing and it has so many complex subsystems that you know you put time and, and attention to detail into. It launches and it feels like it pauses forever, but within a second, you can't even see it anymore. It's that high, it's, it's that far gone. Um, and it's truly an unreal experience. And for me and for a lot of the people on our team, a really inspiring experience as to what it what it could feel like to be part of something as large as the space industry. Speaking of space industry, Mm. where do you see Australia going? I go up and down with where I see Australia going. I I have a fairly good understanding of the directive of the agency and where they see our space industry going, and that is really leveraging the current capacity um, in terms of autonomous systems and and remote, remote controlling. But I think... It could be interesting to see what the Australian people really want because we've already got a lot of people in these sectors, um, whether or not those people want to leave the sectors they're currently in to move into space or whether or not we have a community of people who are keen about space that have a whole different idea than what the agency want. I mean, after the announcement of the agency's directives, you had companies like Gilmore and like Black Sky Aerospace that went completely against what they were saying um, and they're becoming some of the most influential companies in in the country. Mm. I think I see international collaboration becoming more more important from an Australian perspective and potentially just smaller companies using the agency as an interface and finding out what international countries need um, and hoping to become contributors like all the ESA nations are, like Canada is, mm. and really just looking for small amounts on a large-scale project, leveraging that initially and then taking the technology developed out of that and, and moving forward with it. A lot of young people in engineering fields are slightly disappointed by how Australia seems to continuously develop tech for contexts that we already have. They don't search for new new problems or new avenues for technology. Instead, they go, we've got this technology in this context and, and let's match them up or let's realise where we can um, cross-reference kind of work that's already going. I think a lot of the young people are more keen to actually create more of a knowledge economy and really push the development and have that be the foundation of, of growth of the industry. Mm. Do you see the startup community as being a real driver in the space industry or do you think that 
um, government agencies like CSR or, or you know, other similar organizations are going to continue to be major hires? I think it's kind of two parts to this. Well, CSIRO is a major hirer, and in terms of like really beautiful technical development, they're, they're an incredible organization, but they're not a driver of industry. You know, they're, they're a facilitator of industry, truly. So I think that they are starting to shift the way they approach that. I know recently there was a certain amount of money that was allocated to space projects and people internal to the company were the ones suggesting the projects. And so that kind of entrepreneurial approach could start infiltrating organizations such as CSIRO. Mm. But as that begins to happen, there becomes a question of should that organization, which is publicly funded, have that have that entrepreneurial approach to debate, which I think will be very interesting in the time to come. Um, I think that startups have a very, a very unique capability to drive change, mm. but we're in a potentially saturated market when it comes to space startups at the moment. So I'm just hoping that any that come to Australia are uh, intelligent about finding a market that isn't already being tackled by another startup internationally because we're mm. starting to see certain avenues that have got multiple approaches from multiple countries and I really don't want to see any space investment in Australia fail due to lack of a global market. So where are the bits of the industry that you see as real growth areas for Australia? I can't say I'm an expert on this. I'm mm-hmm. still I'm still learning. I do think that space debris is something that we could definitely tackle from from our perspective. That's fantastic. Launch providers are complicated. I think if we can leverage our unique position from a launch provision point of view, that's fantastic. But if we're just trying to get into the same orbits that Northern Hemisphere providers are going into, that could be slightly different. Again, capacity building is important. So potentially saturated markets for you know, could be okay from an initial standpoint, but then using that capability developed in that standard market to find more niche areas could be mm. could be a good approach. Yeah. And then the other ones that we've heard spoken about a, a little bit more recently would be something around remote mining operations. So that's some, some technology that we've developed mm. for our mining operations, particularly in Western Australia, that could potentially be applied to off-earth mining. Um, that could be a longer-term one. Mm. And... An area that doesn't really get much discussion, but that I think is a real growth opportunity for Australia is in regulatory insurance and legal, um, all specifically to do with space. At the moment, I think that, especially with all the startups, you know, as you said, when you were launching rockets for your competition, you had to get certification on certain levels. And the people who know how to do that um, and know how to jump through all of the regulatory hoops and navigate that, I think have very important knowledge mm. that could also become quite in demand. Yeah. I think from, um, from developing that kind of a workforce though, you're really reliant on universities. Um, there's a lot of niches in space and a huge amount that are of great interest, but because they're quite new, the universities haven't caught on to how they could potentially approach that. You know, from we're in America here, we're living in their context at the moment, and there are universities that have space law and space policy um, mm. departments. And it's it's an area of research that people are actively approaching. I think Australian students haven't necessarily caught on as to how much impact they could have there. Mm. Competitions like what we compete in though are really eye-opening. So from a group of students who approached it from a purely engineering perspective, within one year, had a vastly more competent understanding of policy, 
bureaucracy that you have to navigate and organizations like CASA and how to interface with them, what the role of the agency and the policies that they write are and how they how they work with us. And so that developing space community and opportunities, something like the Australian University's rocket competition is really exposing those niche areas. And I think if we can continue to facilitate universities to, to tackle those sorts of eye-opening challenges, something like the University Rover Challenge as well, then we're really going to open the eyes of the students and potentially open the eyes of the universities as well. Let's talk about more further in the future. This is the year of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landings. But looking forward to another 50 years, mm. um, in another 50 years, Megan, you and I will both be in our early to mid 70s. <laughs> what do you think that space looks like then? And what do you think Earth looks like then? Goodness, I mean, we've just been to SGC where they, they really dare you to dream, don't they? In, in thinking about the capabilities, I've had my eyes truly opened this week. One of the incredible things that someone said to me was, pretty soon from now, instead of filming a space movie on Earth, it will be cheaper to film a space movie in space. And to me, thinking that through and really processing that opened my eyes. Mm. I think right now, NASA really controls the narrative in terms of space exploration is the topic and we're talking about going to the moon and we're talking about going to Mars and that's fantastic because going to the moon and going to the Mars is capacity building. It's capacity building for further exploration, it's capacity building for the commercial sector in space as well and it's capacity building for us here on Earth in terms of all of our technologies. The narrative I think is going to shift once that capacity increases to the point where the commercial sector really has control. We usually see government agencies controlling the narrative and then commercialized companies improving upon it. And I think when they get to the point where the market is such that it can be invested in by with less less capital, I guess, less upfront capital, we're going to see incredible growth in space tourism, in space manufacturing. Somebody even said to me the other day, just imagine how many people are going to want to go for a space wedding. It's just so many things. I'm excited to see that. And I think 50 years from now, the reality is I can't even imagine. Just like 50 years ago, nobody could have imagined that we have companies that are in control of so much of space. You know, yeah. back, back 50 years ago, everyone would have thought it would just be the organizations, the governmental agencies forever. And now we're talking about commercial companies and it could continue to grow into something we can't even imagine where it's no longer commercial companies from Earth, it's commercial companies that are spinning out from space itself. Maybe space is having its own space, space entrepreneurs. It's just... The meta space. The meta space, exactly. And you just have to be open to all of the possibilities and keep your, you know, keep your mind open. At SGC last week, I was so struck by someone's comment that the average age of the people in NASA mission control for the Apollo 11 landings mm. was, what was it? It was 27. 27. 27 years old was the average age yeah. of those people in mission control. Now, for me, that was striking because... In many ways, space is a young person's game now. And many of the people who are running startups in Australia and many of the people here at IAC, where we're recording, are young. Mm. But there's still, I feel, not that sense from our government that the millennial generation of people, you know, if you were to pick a bunch of people with an average age of 27, should be trusted with something like landing people on the moon. Do you feel that too? Absolutely. Within Australia, I don't think that there's a lot of faith in the younger generation. 
Mm. And I think that people could take a look at some of the other countries like the UAE. The UAE currently have people in their 20s in incredible positions of authority within their space industry. And it's really driving a positive change. If you look at their international cooperation policies in terms of data sharing, in terms of providing support to the universities for really facilitating the development of their youth, it's incredible. It really is. I've learned a lot about this week and I'm I'm genuinely impressed. And I think it's going to drive a very innovative industry in their country. I mean, I'm very, very excited to see how it goes. I think in Australia, there is a real lack of faith in young engineers because of the way that engineering has changed over the years. I think that the traditional approach to engineering is is shifting and the older generation doesn't have as much faith in, in the current capacity of students, which is very difficult to navigate. But I also don't think that space pathways for students are very well thought out in our country. I think that facilitating graduates from their undergraduate into companies is a real barrier at the moment. Like you said, the Australian Space Agency is not a technical organisation. They're a facilitatory body, which different topic for a different time, I think is an intelligent move. But it does mean that they can't support and facilitate students and then are relying on industry to do it. And because Mm. we have such a young space industry, a young space industry that potentially can't afford that long-term investment, there is a problem happening. Mm. And there's a problem where those students need a little bit more experience in order to get into the industry, but in Mm. order to get that experience, they have to leave the country. And by the time they leave the country, they may never come back. And I think this is a very, very big problem. When Apollo 11 was happening, the average 27-year-old you met on the street wearing a NASA shirt worked for NASA yeah whereas now the average 27 year old you meet on the street wearing a NASA shirt still lives at home can't afford the house maybe is still at university maybe it's a risk thing and I feel that tension every time we sit down for a panel at one of these events with rows and rows of white-haired older generally men sitting there on these panels talking they have such experience and such wisdom But I found it so inspiring yesterday to hear from Buzz Aldrin, who is older and white-haired and male, (laughs) but who stood up and spoke, even in his two-minute acceptance speech for his award, with such vision Mm. about improving things, you know, in our space operations. I thought that was really inspiring. Yeah. No, absolutely. And there are champions of change. Um, A really great example of that is the Director General of the European Space Agency, And I was hearing from him yesterday about no more excuses in creating diverse teams. And and he talked about diversity from a multitude of um, directions in terms of diversity of experience, diversity of age, background, ethnicity, everything, Mm. you know. And the reality is the young generation should not attempt to undertake space without the older generation. They know a lot. They've been around and they're going to remember history in a way that we just can't. But I think it's about creating cross-generational work in the most effective way and making sure that all generations understand the value of one another and Mm. the deficiencies of one another. Because it's one thing for young people to be like, we are the future. But unless they understand where their barriers are, they're not going to be able to achieve everything they want. And if they can work together with different generations to really provide the most diverse opinion, that's when we're going to conquer the vast expanse of space. Facilitating that in Australia is complex because we had we had a kind of developing space industry in the Apollo era, but it did go through a lull, which means at the moment you've got old space, 
no middle space and now you have new space and new space is very new because a lot of us didn't grow up thinking we would ever be a part of something there was no space industry in australia nasa was kind of not really undertaking any large-scale projects there wasn't anything driving pure inspiration but i think that's changing now and we've got this divide and bridging that divide is going to be really intriguing i would mention that from a rocketry community perspective all of our mentoring came from engineers that had been doing it for a very long time. So mm. we were very, very fortunate to collaborate with some incredible Australians um, and they really gave us all the foundation we needed. And that was my first experience with cross-generational mentoring. Um, mm. And it was truly, truly beneficial to everyone involved. I think if you see us now, we go to the to the local pub together to discuss rocketry and, and they'll tell us about their experiences or the development that they've been doing. And we'll tell them about the new technologies that we're using to approach the same problems. And it's really beneficial for everyone to see how, how we're playing together. You and I have been to many conferences. We know how important it is, not just diversity in one way, but diversity in every way, in every panel you need to make sure that everyone has a completely different perspective. You know, even if it just means I've got three companies, I don't want three CEOs. I want a CEO, I want someone from human relations, and I want someone from marketing. I want to see all of the different opinions, you know, different backgrounds and, and everything. Um, and yep. that's incredibly important. And fostering a real discussion yes. that brings in all of those elements. Mm. I sometimes run across people who say that it's difficult uh, in an industry where you know people don't see someone like themselves yes. that they can identify with and that's true but the space industry even though most of the older generation in the space industry with some notable and wonderful exceptions are fairly homogenous in terms of gender for example mm. i have found them extremely willing to mentor a more diverse up-and-coming mm. generation including myself uh, and i think that's something that we really need to encourage yeah, yeah even in even in your mentorship, seeking diversity is, is fantastic. And that means taking people from a fairly, homogenous is an interesting word, but you know, the standard people from an industry are not invaluable just because they don't come from a diverse perspective. Their perspective is still incredibly important, but it just mm. means that everyone you're speaking to and everyone you're engaging with, you try and get as many opinions as possible because mm. All of them are going to be valuable. Not all of them will apply to you, but understanding maybe how they're going to apply to the people around you, how they could apply, um, how they applied to that person, and then seeking an understanding of their experience and maybe mm. getting a better context on on their frame of reference. It's all incredibly important. And I think this is something that you and I share in common: is that that network. We have an incredible global network by coming to events such as this, but I don't have a strong Australian network. And maybe that's something that we need to be discussing. You know, how do we create? a cross-generational network in Australia when currently most of the organisations are very age-specific. So mm. the Australian Youth Aerospace Association is an incredible organisation of students and young professionals, but they don't directly network with people older except for in you know industry events, in which case you're trying to learn about that person, their company, potentially trying to suss out employment. And that's important and, and needed, but just in terms of engaging on a personal level and and not looking for something just seeking to understand experience mm. there's not really much of a forum for that in australia right now mm. well perhaps you and i can work on that together this is something we can we'll take about. that offline um <laughs> now tell us about this event next year the australian youth aerospace association event yeah give us the pitch so the australian youth aerospace association every year runs aerospace futures which is the largest run um, conference for aerospace students and young professionals 
It is a quickly developing conference. Every year it's shifting, same as the industry keeps shifting. It tackles both space and aviation. So it's, it's got something for everyone. Um, we're investigating kind of primarily the centralized parts of aerospace because most of our attendees are aerospace, but also all the things that come along with that. You know, aerospace engineers cannot do anything without the electrical engineers, without the help of their policy friends and their legal friends. So we're very interested in exposing the, I guess, the diverse range of opportunities within the within the industry. Um, there's going to be a renewed focus this year on interrelations between students and young professionals. Um, as the industry starts to develop, the young professionals are going to be very valuable, I believe, to the up and coming students. And we want to make sure that that network is, is well linked. There's also going to be more of a focus on understanding the in international relations and policy side of everything aerospace, because students in Australia are not exposed to that. Truly, they have an incredible capacity in a technical sense, but they don't frequently get a, a look a look into how that might work in a company setting. And so there's mm. going to be a new and exciting approach to that this year. It's running in Adelaide in July for anyone who's interested in attending. Um, it's a fantastic event. It was about 200 students last year and an incredible wealth of different companies, different speakers. We had people from the Australian Space Agency, Boeing, um, BAE, Talus, Shoal, a, a wide variety of companies. And, and they're very excited, those companies, very excited to speak to those students. Um, I've never been in a forum in Australia where I've really felt wanted by industry in the way that I did at Aerospace Futures because they're just excited to meet the new, new and up and coming people of industry. So I'd highly recommend anyone come along who can. Okay. And if people want to look that up, they can, can they Google it? Yep. If you just Google Aerospace Futures, it will come up. It should say AYAA as the organizing body. In the case that you can't find it on Google, I'd recommend you go on the Facebook page for AYAA. There will be links there to the website and to all of the relevant materials. And when it's more officially launched as well, I imagine there'll be some sort of marketing campaign that occurs. Absolutely. You'll be so keep a look hopefully out. seeing it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Keep a lookout if you're interested in attending and being involved, whether you are a young professional, a student or someone who's of a different generation who is willing and able to be a mentor. Mm -hmm. Megan, to finish, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you if you have any advice for someone who might be young, who might not look at the space industry and see themselves represented mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Any advice to them? I would say keep looking and look everywhere possible. Most of the most of my exposure to the space industry has just come from taking every single opportunity to see new aspects of it, going to every available conference, going to every available event, be that big ones like IAC, but also just smaller networking events all around Australia right now. Space forums are being created for people to share ideas and share their excitement, get committed on a local level, get committed on a national level and on a global level to meeting new people. The more people you meet, the more you realize that there is no one person in the industry. So even if you don't see someone like you, you know that that doesn't matter because someday you'll be that person and someone might see you and you'll be that inspiration for them. And that's truly exciting to me. I mean, I'm still in my undergraduate. I've had some incredible experiences um, with the rocketry team even now at university. I feel, I feel the impact that that has on other people. I've had people come up to me and ask, what can I do to get to the position you're in where you're involved and you're, and you're being a part of the community? And all I say to every single one of them is come to every event you can, 
read emails about opportunities, look for opportunities. Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Seek it out and seek out things that are not necessarily exactly what you thought as well. Um, I never thought that being involved in a rocketry competition would put me in the position of running a conference, but the two have been incredibly linked because of the people I met and the network it created. So experiences, open experiences, I think is the main thing that I've, I've found. Um, the SGC is a great example. I didn't know about this until I went to Aerospace Futures and finding out about one thing led to another. And I think it's, it's very much a snowball effect. So dive in, um, get started early. Don't be afraid if you're in your first year of university people will still be excited to have you around. So, And if people want to get in contact or follow what you're up to, do you have Twitter? Do you have Instagram? Do you have any sort of public profile? Or how can someone get in contact if they wanted to? So that's a fantastic question. I need to make Twitter. I think you need to teach me how to use Twitter because I don't know how. I think I need to be taught how to use Twitter. <laughs> we need to find someone to teach us how to use Isn't Twitter. Isn't this ridiculous that... Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I had someone yesterday as we were sitting in the opening ceremony sort of lean over as I was struggling with my new Instagram and say, oh, wow, look at you go on Instagram, you millennials, that you've got all of these social media tricks. Can you help me with my Snapchat? And I had to tell him very politely that I'm sorry, but I've never used Snapchat and I don't really know how it works or what it looks like. And that I'd only got Instagram a month ago and still was really quite unclear on what a hashtag was for. So <laughs> it was quite amusing, but <laughs> anyway, we're not all quite there. We'll get there. One thing I have learned how to use though is LinkedIn. So if anyone wants to speak to me, I'd recommend contacting me on there. Um, yep. Send me a message. I'm very happy to engage on that platform because I think it's a great place to share ideas about a mutual industry. So. Brilliant. And Megan's name is spelt M-E-A-G-H-A-N. And her last name is Munro, spelt M-U-N-R-O. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, I'm really looking forward to the event next year and to speaking to the rest of the conference and ongoing. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. If you would like to get in contact or you have any questions or comments, you can email me on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Handma. Love me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other In other words, darling, kiss me.
I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.